Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher and my colleague Julia Chastley. Just ahead on today's show, Victory Day in Moscow, Russia marks the 78th anniversary of the defeat of Germany in World War II, even as it struggles on the battlefield in Ukraine. The latest on today's military observances just ahead. And debt debate in Washington. President Biden sits down with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other Republican leaders, their first face-to-face talks on raising the debt limit. The two sides are far apart right now, with time certainly running out to find a solution. On financial markets, U.S. futures are lower as investors await the outcome of today's negotiations and brace for important inflation data tomorrow. CPI is coming out tomorrow. Uh, Europe also under pressure as well after mixed Asian handover. Chinese stocks falling amid news that imports plunged almost 8% last month. The data showing China's economy struggling even after the end of COVID-19 lockdowns. So much to get through this hour. We begin, though, uh, with the latest from Moscow. And Ukraine earlier today, Russians marked the defeat of Nazi Germany in World War II, while the war, of course, in Ukraine still rages on. The Victory Day celebrations were significantly scaled down, with only one tank and under tight security after a purported drone attack on the Kremlin itself last week. President Putin delivered a defiant speech to the crowd and said that Russia is the victim of its war uh, with Ukraine. Again, a true war has been unleashed against our motherland. We have repelled international terrorism and we will defend the residents of Donbass and secure our own safety. Matthew Chance joins us live now. So, Matthew, as expected, Vladimir Putin portrayed himself and Russia as a victim and said that the West uh, was trying to destroy their country. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of narrative that we've heard from Vladimir Putin for the past year and a half. Uh, basically, that, that this was a, a, a war that's been orchestrated by the West. This isn't really a battle against Ukraine. This is a battle against sort of, the Western powers who are using Ukraine uh, to try and destroy Russia. We, we've heard it time and again. And Vladimir Putin uh, used this platform on Victory Day uh, in the center of the Russian capital in, in Red Square to, to restate that narrative again. But he was presiding over a a shrunken parade. Um, It was still a big display of military might. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there were 8,000 troops there. But last year, there was something more like 12,000. The year before, it was even more than that. Um, uh, There was no aerial display this year. um, And it wasn't for weather reasons it was cancelled. It was for some other reason, probably security reasons. Um, And as you mentioned, there was only one tank. Uh, The intercontinental ballistic missiles were were at the centre of the display, as they are every year. Uh, A reminder that Russia has this nuclear power, this nuclear deterrent, this nuclear threat, if you like, it chooses uh, to, to, to rattle its nuclear sabre uh, quite often. 
Um, you know, but again, you know, a, a much shrunken uh, spectacular than what we've seen in previous years. And that's partly to do with the security situation. There has been uh, an upsurge in attacks against key Russian installations, particularly on the Kremlin. Uh, just a couple of days ago, just last week, drones, according to the Kremlin, uh, struck the Kremlin uh, in what they called uh, a Ukrainian assassination attempt on the life of Vladimir Putin. But there's also speculation that Russia, which is heavily engaged in Ukraine, which is preparing uh, for a counteroffensive by the Ukrainian military, simply doesn't have the forces to bear to bring to Red Square to put on display, which is why perhaps there was only one old Second World War era tank and none of its latest, newest uh, military equipment. Yeah, as you point out, a much more scaled down uh, celebration today uh, in Red Square. Matthew Chance, live for us there. Thank you so much. In Ukraine, meantime, President Zelensky says that Russia has failed in its quest to take Bakhmut as a victory day prize. He was speaking at a joint press conference with European President Ursula von der Leyen. They were not able to capture Bakhmut. This was uh, the last important uh, military operation that they wanted to complete by the 9th of May. And uh, unfortunately, this city does not exist anymore. Meantime, Russia continues to evacuate civilians from occupied frontline towns ahead of a much-anticipated Ukrainian counter-offensive. Nick Payne-Walsh joins us live now. And, and Nick, overnight we got word that there were about 15 or so Russian cruise missiles aimed squarely at Kyiv. Every single one of them uh, was shot down. What more do we know on that front, too? Yeah, this is a consistent pattern we're seeing over the past night. So barrages of drones and missiles launched towards Ukrainian civilian areas, a lot of them shot down. And it's not always 100% transparency about what military targets may have been hit. But the persistent message from Ukrainian officials are the drones are not getting through at all. Uh, with some exceptions, uh, Odessa, one life lost when a warehouse was hit uh, yesterday. But clearly Ukraine's air defense is working better over the larger populated areas. It's on the front lines, though, particularly along the Zaporizhia southern front, where many expect Ukraine's counter-offensive uh, to get underway, uh, that the barrage is consistent and brutal. Here's what we saw some days down on that front line. Occupied Ukraine is aflame and evacuating its civilians. Russia's wholesale departure can't come soon enough for frontline town or a heave. Ravaged by Moscow, where four missiles hit on Thursday alone. Rescuers left guessing what the constant bangs mean and have done. See people just down the road here carrying on life as per normal despite dust in the sky around us. It may not be, in fact, outgoing. He's saying it doesn't particularly time of day when these sort of things start. It could be any time at all, frankly. As dusk falls, the sky is lit in a duel. All they can do here to stay alive is read the horizon. Some of it perhaps further south into occupied areas than a week earlier. But so much of it also very close. Dawn is often jarring. We hear a jet overhead. 
the slowly building, grating sound of damage moving towards you. A missile, a half-million-dollar KH-31, Ukrainian officials later say, lands just 700 yards away. Yeah, I was on the floor, buddy. Another blast follows. Either jet entrails or anti-aircraft fire settle to shape a Z in the air, the symbol of Russia's invasion. It is soon gone. The damage it leaves, though, isn't. This is where it hit, or missed. Down here you can get a feeling of just how massively brutal Russian firepower can be, and also how indiscriminate. I can still smell the explosive down here, and you're kind of left wondering where the obvious military target is. At the end of this road is Polohi, one of the towns Russia has said it is evacuating. We are just one mile from Russian frontline positions here, a world torn apart as Moscow tries to hold Ukraine back. Well, no more than 10 miles in that direction are the first towns that Russian occupying forces say they're going to be evacuating because of the Ukrainian counter-offensive. But look at here, the last town really held by Ukraine, absolutely battered. And so few people left here, there's little need to evacuate. Where there were once 3,000, there are 200 people trying to stay, says Raisa. Caught in these wide open spaces where a distant bang can suddenly alter life in an instant. Now, in this battlefield of Russia's own choosing on Victory Day, the messages it's giving out are of disunity and well, some degree, chaos. There's certainly the evacuations in uh, areas on the front line continue. Now 3,000 civilians pulled out, apparently, according to Ukrainian officials, shortages of gasoline, uh, access to cash from ATMs, uh, cell phone problems as well. These are all things that Russian occupying forces need to continue their presence there. So potentially, we're seeing the beginnings of Ukrainian military pressure on those areas. Quite separately, in that deeply symbolic city of Bakhmut, which they said you heard Heard there, uh, the European uh, Union leader, they were making a reference uh, to Bakhmut being something they wanted to take today. Well, instead, we've seen a week of extraordinary back and forth drama from Wagner mercenary chief uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, one of the most prominent military figures Russia indeed has. He'd said he was going to leave tomorrow because they didn't have enough artillery shells. Then yesterday he said he was going to get enough. And now this morning he said, actually, no, I haven't got enough. Uh, he claimed the chief of staff of Russia, Garasimov, had intervened and reduced the amount of shells that they were supposed to receive. It's unclear if that means they may leave tomorrow. He even accused, too, Russia's conventional military of giving up some areas along that Bakhmut front line. So this spat, which seemed to come out of nowhere, and Prigozhin consistently seems to have, almost with himself on Telegram, not getting an official public response uh, from Russian military officials to his claims and demands uh, has even led him today to suggest that he was told if he left the front line in Bakhmut, his men and himself would be charged with treason. So a lot's happening publicly in terms of displays of Russian disunity on a day where they'd like to remind everybody of the sacrifice uh, that Soviet citizens made uh, during the Second World War. But startling, frankly, the scenes in Moscow echoing too, I think, a diminished Russian military here, wondering quite when Ukraine's counter will begin to yield results. But as you point out, the drama between 
Prigozhin uh, and, and the rest of sort of Russia's military leaders. Hugely embarrassing for the Kremlin for that to play out publicly on Victory Day and obviously in the run-up to it. Nick Payne Walsh live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan arrested. He was detained by paramilitary troops while attending court in the capital, Islamabad. Khan has been preparing a political comeback since he was ousted in the parliamentary no-confidence vote last year. It is just after 6 o'clock in the evening in Karachi and people are out on the street to protest Khan's uh, arrest. Ivan Watson joins us live now. So what does his arrest mean for the possibility of sort of more violent clashes between Imran Khan's supporters and, of course, Pakistani police? This is a dramatic development. I mean, you had Imran Khan, who was uh, coming to court in Islamabad. He was uh, in the building. He was doing his biometrics. Uh, and then suddenly uh, a large force of paramilitary officers uh, surrounded the building and started actually breaking in the windows to uh, detain him. And there's actually video that's been released by his political party showing them bashing in the windows. And the camera at one point pivots and you see Imran Khan sitting there with his sunglasses on, uh, seemingly relaxed. Uh, whereas moments later, he is then taken away, surrounded again by dozens of these helmeted and uh, uh, armed officers to a vehicle. Now, he seemed to anticipate that this was going to come because he pre-recorded several videos. I'm going to play an excerpt from one of these that he seemed to record earlier in the day. Take a listen. By the time you receive these words of mine, I will have been detained on incorrect charges. Pakistan constitution, which gives us rights, which gives us democracy, has been buried. Perhaps I won't get the opportunity to speak to you again. Now, this is very important. He goes on to urge his supporters to come out for their fundamental rights and says that the time has come for all of you to come and struggle for your rights. So we're already seeing protests erupting in Islamabad, in the largest city, Karachi, uh, in Lahore, where uh, we've seen demonstrators outside the residence of the most senior military officer in that city. Now, it's worth noting here, Zane, that this has been part of a growing political drama and basically test of wills between uh, Imran Khan, the former prime minister ousted in a no-confidence vote a little bit more than a year ago, uh, and the current government as well as the military. There have been previous uh, arrest warrants issued, previous attempts to arrest him that he's essentially resisted. In March, police tried to detain him in Lahore from his residence and uh, supporters of him uh, threw stones. They resisted the police. There was tear gas fired. Uh, he was never uh, ultimately apprehended. The authorities have released the arrest warrant here. They say it was issued by the National Accountability Bureau, and they say that he's been arrested on uh, accusations of corruption con uh, in conjunction with a university and uh, more than uh, $100 million worth uh, of funds that they're accusing him of having something to do with. Uh, but this is uh, part of a much bigger, uh, again, test of wills where Imran Khan has been openly accusing the government and the military and the intelligence of trying to stop him from being able to run for office in elections uh, that are scheduled to take place later this year. And this is all against a much bigger backdrop of just a horrific economic crisis with uh, inflation last month and this month of some 30 percent uh, skyrocketing food prices 
all of this adding to just uh, a, a real climate of political and economic instability in a nuclear armed nation. Zane. All right, Ivan Watson, live for us there. Thank you. Key talks are underway at the White House today to try to avert a potential economic catastrophe here in the United States. Time is running out to resolve the debt ceiling. Uh, with the Treasury warning its cash reserves will dry up early next month by June 1st, approximately. That leaves America at risk of defaulting on its debts for the first time ever. And President Biden and House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy could not be further apart. Lauren Fox is in Washington for us. So, Lauren, we've got that meeting coming up uh, today. Just given that both sides are so far apart, given that both sides seem to be digging in their heels, what can we realistically expect to come out of this meeting? Well, Zane, this is a high-stakes meeting, but the chances of brokering some kind of breakthrough deal this afternoon, that's extremely slim. And that is because both sides are so dug in right now. What you have from the White House is this argument that they are willing to have a conversation about spending cuts and the federal government's budget, but they want to do that on a separate track, separate from the debt ceiling increase. Meanwhile, you have House Republicans who are walking into this meeting today with Speaker McCarthy having more leverage than maybe anyone else in that room ever expected him to have. That is because he passed legislation. It is the only bill that has passed a chamber of the House of Representatives in which he increases the debt ceiling and it's accompanied by trillions in spending cuts. He's arguing that he's shown he has the votes for a deal. Of course, that legislation has no chances of passing in the democratically controlled U.S. Senate. So all sides walking in today really no closer to reaching an agreement. The hope is that the fever can perhaps break and perhaps everyone can find a way to have this conversation about some kind of two-track plan, one to cut spending, the other to try and increase the debt ceiling to ensure that the country does not default on its debt. And of course, it's important to remind everyone, this is not new spending. This is the bills that the U.S. has already incurred. And that is the argument that you're hearing from Democrats over and over again, that in the past, they don't negotiate on this issue. And this is really hearkening back to a standoff that happened more than a decade ago now, in which both sides of the aisle found themselves in a very similar negotiating positions, pushing this deadline right to the brink with the markets reacting in a way that finally brought everyone back to the negotiating table. It's about three to four weeks, we expect, that they have to work on this legislation. But obviously, there's a lot riding on this meeting today, even if we don't expect any major breakthroughs. Same. All right. Lauren Fox, live for us there. Thank you so much. White House uh, economists say a protracted government debt default could wipe out more than 8 million jobs and drive the stock market down by 50%. The Treasury Secretary has been calling CEOs and business leaders to discuss the debt ceiling, according to a source familiar with the matter. Janet Yellen didn't mince her words about the consequences of a default without a deal. If they fail to do it, we will have an economic and financial catastrophe that will be of our own making. And um, there is no action that President Biden uh, and the U.S. Treasury can take to prevent that uh, catastrophe. Rahel Solomon joins us live now. So a protracted shutdown is obviously the worst possible scenario. We just talked there about the potential of losing 8 million jobs in this country. But even less than that, even less than a protracted 
shutdown could cause serious damage to the U.S. economy, Rahel. Zane, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the reality is that the longer this stretches on, the more damage it causes. And as you pointed out, a protracted default would be sort of the worst case scenario, right? It would sort of be economic calamity, uh, as we've heard White House officials say, but it doesn't take a protracted default to really see damage. And we can show you just some of the impacts of a default. But even according to some analysis that the White House pointed out, a short default would result in a loss of 500,000 jobs. Uh, Brinksmanship would result in a loss of 200,000 jobs. So again, the reality is the longer this stretches on, the more damage it creates. Now, I should say to your point about Yellen uh, reaching out to CEOs in the business community to try to see if they can use uh, their connections to convince Republicans to pass a clean uh, debt ceiling increase. I also know within the small business community and Zane, you know, when you think about small business owners, really the engine of hiring here in the U.S., really uh, the engine of about 40 percent of economic growth. So a huge uh, group here in the U.S. in terms of economic growth. There is a a lot of support within the small business community here in the U.S. for lawmakers to also get this done. Goldman Sachs, for its part, put out a survey just a few days ago uh, pointing out it surveyed small business owners more than 1,700 and pointed out that 65 percent say that they would be negatively impacted if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling. But critically important, 81 percent of those same small business owners also said that it was important for Congress to enact spending cuts in conjunction with the debt ceiling increase. So there is strong support for both lawmakers to get this done, but also a conversation about spending cuts. And when I spoke to uh, one of the senior advisors of a group, a nationwide coalition, we can pull up this quote for you, a nationwide coalition of small business owners. And I said, look, how are small business owners feeling about this? I certainly know how economists are feeling about it. And he said, look, this this comment coming from Brett Buttle, he said, there's a lot of frustration from small business owners who really want congressional leaders to act because they've seen the impact that this will have on their business, the economy, and for many of them, their employees, referring there to a government shutdown, which, of course, we have witnessed and experienced. But we know that a full default would be much more severe than that. So, look, you have uh, certainly the business community perhaps stepping up here, but you also have small business owners who are very concerned about the impact of this in terms of whether they're federal contractors and they do business with the government or even just the economic climate if we were, in fact, to uh, see a default here. I mean, yeah, you think about the ramifications for equities, stock market, for uh, the federal workers who wouldn't be paid. I mean, the list goes on. It would be a disaster. Rahel Solomon, live press there. Thank you so much. Right, still to come here on First Move, a scaled-down Victory Day celebration in Russia. After the break, we discuss what's different this year and what it could mean with a leading expert on Russia and Ukraine. A lot of fear here in the United States, uh, given the potential for potential for a debt default. Uh, we know that President Joe Biden is meeting with Republican lawmakers today to try to get the issue resolved when it comes to raising the debt ceiling. Let's talk more about this with Greg Vallier. He's the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investment. Greg, thank you so much for being with us. I was actually just speaking to one of our correspondents, Rahel, about this. Uh, The consequences of a potential default, let's say come June 1st, would potentially be not only the stock market losing half its value, but potentially 8,000 jobs in this country uh, being lost. Just, Just walk us through what you see happening here. Do you think that they will reach a deal last minute as they always do? 
Well, uh, nice to see you. I think, first of all, I don't expect anything today. Uh, they're meeting this afternoon, as you know, at the White House. Maybe they'll agree to meet again. Maybe they'll agree to double their efforts. Maybe they'll agree that we shouldn't default. But I certainly don't see any imminent deal. We've got at least several weeks to go. And frankly, there's a mood in Washington right now that perhaps we may have to extend the deadline. We may have to go and kick the can down the road and have this expire in the fall. That's not out of the question. Why aren't we really seeing sort of extreme nervousness just yet in the equity markets? I think we are seeing some nervousness when we look at treasuries, but the equity market doesn't really seem to be showing any signs of concern just yet. It's a really good question, and you're right. The, uh, the bond market is starting to show some anxiety. I think in the stock market, there's a, a view that's quite sanguine, not justifiable in my opinion, but it's quite sanguine that we've had crises like this before, in particular in 2011, and at the last minute we got a deal. So perhaps the stock market thinks that we'll get a deal at the last minute. I think that's dangerous logic because the new house, the house right now is so radical that they may not agree to any kind of a deal. If, uh, if House Speaker McCarthy says we're going to water down all the spending cuts we agreed to two or three months ago, the right wing will walk. And if the right wing walks, we go right back into a real genuine threat of default. I mean, even though, yes, you know, we've seen a deal last minute before and we've seen, we've been on tenterhooks as we waited until the 11 hour, just, just the fact that uh, it is cutting it so close, you know, what does that do to consumer confidence, for example, business confidence uh, here in the U.S.? Well, consumer confidence is not doing all that well for President Biden, who's had terrible polls in the last 48 hours. I think that most consumers look at food prices when they go to the grocery store as the number one indicator. I'm not convinced that uh, the American voters are all that nervous yet about a, a shutdown or a government default. I think it's more food and, to a lesser extent now, mm -hmm. gasoline. But I think that anxiety is going to increase over the next few weeks. There are those who say, look, um, obviously a default uh, is not the best case scenario. That's not what anyone would want. But it wouldn't necessarily be the Armageddon that some economists uh, say that it would be. I mean, what do you make of that? What would it actually feel, feel like? I mean, there are those who say, listen, it would be similar to what we saw in 2008 with the financial crisis. Then just paint a picture for our audience in terms of what uh, it would actually look like from, a, from an you know, economy perspective if the U.S. was to default on its debt. How would it trickle down to ordinary American consumers? Well, I think global investors, first of all, would get quite nervous, and the markets in the U.S. would probably go down. They'd certainly be volatile, I would say that at the very least, and this would probably be a nerve-wracking experience for ordinary people who own stock. I would say this, though, Zane. I think that there is still a chance that if we, we could get right to the precipice, and as we were about to fall off a cliff, there's still a chance that the Federal Reserve could take action to uh, avoid this. There's still a chance we could, as I said, wait until fall. And there's even a chance we could look at the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, mm -hmm. which essentially says you can't go, you can't go bankrupt. So there still are options. And perhaps the markets and perhaps most Americans feel that at the last minute we'll get bailed out. And we might. And uh, pivoting slightly, uh 
Just in terms of uh, raising interest rates uh, here in the U.S., I mean, the Federal Reserve intimated that, look, it is possible that they are done with rate hikes for now. Obviously, then we got the jobs report on Friday, clearly showing so much resiliency in the labor market. We are also expecting CPI data out tomorrow. Just walk us through whether or not you think we are done with rate hikes for now, or of course, it's data dependent. So where do you think the Fed will go uh, next time they meet? I think they'll pause. They could resume later in the summer or in the fall. It's not out of the question. But one sector I look at a lot, and the Fed talked about yesterday, is commercial real estate, which is really a disaster in much of America. Uh, Commercial real estate is in such bad shape, it, it could infect even more banks. I think that's something the Fed has to be worried about. If we get a decent CPI number tomorrow, around five, maybe even a little lower, I think the Fed will say, you know, we're off the hook for a while. All right, Greg Vallier, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running this Tuesday, a weak start to the trading day after Monday's mostly flat close. Investors are waiting the outcome of today's debt ceiling talks In Washington, a bipartisan think tank today estimating that unless the ceiling is raised, the government will default on its debt sometime between early June and early August. Investor concerns are not limited to the debt limit. Uh, The Fed warning uh, in a report yesterday of a potential crisis in the commercial real estate market. Actually, our previous guest, Greg Vallier, was just talking about that. And new U.S. data shows the recent banking tremors are making it much more difficult to borrow. Vladimir Putin says a true war is being waged on Russia. The Russian president was speaking during a defiant speech from Red Square to celebrate Victory Day. The speech and scaled back parade came hours after Russia launched several cruise missiles at Kyiv. While the day was dedicated to a past victory, it was the current war with Ukraine that was on President Putin's mind. The Russian leader finished his remarks by congratulating Russian soldiers who fought on the country's battlefield against Ukraine and once again referred to the war as a special military operation. Joining me live now is Melinda Haring, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Melinda, thank you so much for being with us. So Putin, as expected, talked about this idea that Russia is basically a victim uh, in this entire war and that the West was trying to destroy uh, his country. Just, Just walk us through whether or not there was anything in Putin's speech that you found surprising. Much of it was indeed expected. That's right, Zane. Thanks for being here. So it was old, angry Putin uh, who was on display today. He blamed the West uh, for the war in Ukraine, which is patently false. Uh, And he also loves to pull out his Nazi scare card. He also said that Russia must defend residents in the Donbass. This is the region in eastern Ukraine that is Ukrainian. No, no real big surprises, though, in the message. I think the big surprise today was how small, how somber and how sad the parade was. It was not much of a parade at all. Yeah, I mean, speaking of which, you had one sort of aging tank being paraded through. Um, obviously, you know, many of their tanks are deployed on the front lines, but many of them also have been destroyed. You think about the number of uh, troops taking part. I think it was just 8,000 this time around compared to 12,000 just last year. No aerial displays at all. Just just walk us through what 
message. I mean, obviously, Putin would have loved to have had a win to be able to sell to the Russian people, especially perhaps the capture of Bakhmut. That would have been a great win for them to be able to sell. Obviously, they're not getting that. I mean, and the, the entire parade is much more scaled down. What is the overall sort of message here? So Putin is trying to convince people that he's still in charge and that the mighty Russian army can face off this challenge. Putin's legitimacy rests on him being the heir of the army that defeated the Nazis. And that's what today's celebration is about. But like you said, the optics were not good. So last year there were 11,000 soldiers. This year there were 8,000 and many of them weren't soldiers. They were students and they were trainers. So that's a change as well. Now, Putin loves to show off his new toys and parade them through Red Square. There were new, no new toys. There was only one tank, as, and it was an old Soviet tank. We also saw last year there were 151 at least military vehicles. And to, uh, today, we think there were about 50. So it was a, a small, small uh, number of vehicles. And the parade itself was less than an hour long. And we haven't seen that in years and years. It was also a small crowd. Putin had probably seven international leaders, and they were from the former Central Asian states, from Armenia and from Belarus. So it was not uh, it was not a Davos crowd, right? It was a very, very <laughs> small uh, group of loyal uh, loyal people. Yeah, the seven leaders from former Soviet republics. Um, and then on top of that, you have this sort of um, I don't want to say argument, but this sort of beef playing out between Progrosian and Russian military leaders about whether or not the Wagner group are getting enough ammunition. One minute Progosian says, yes, they are, everything's fine, then they're not, then they are, then they're not. Um, that's also hugely embarrassing for President Putin as well. Absolutely, and this is all playing out in the public. Remember, Vladimir Putin wants to control the media narrative and he can't control Progosian. So th th what he was saying today, Progosian was saying today is embarrassing and it makes Vladimir Putin look like he's not in charge. Remember the parade is coming days after the drone strike on the Kremlin as well. So I, I think the image that, that Russia is projecting today is not a strong one and that the Russian military has been really degraded in Ukraine. Right, Melinda Haring, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much for being with us. The Chinese government widening its crackdown on the consulting industry. Authorities have raided multiple offices of the consulting firm Capvision. Uh, Chinese media reports saying police accused the firm of endangering national security. Beijing recently targeted Bain & Company and Mintz Group as well. Capvision has not responded to CNN's request for comment. The company posted on Chinese social media Monday that it firmly implements the concept of national security development. Stephen Zhang in Beijing has more. Capvision is but the latest example of this very much coordinated nationwide multi-agency crackdown on this commercially very important but politically increasingly sensitive industry. Remember, consulting is very much part of the uh, doing business in China in this system not known for its transparency. That's why it's a big business here. But just in the past few weeks, we've seen Shanghai police raiding the offices of Bain and Company, a huge U.S. consultancy. And before that, the Beijing offices of Minsk Group, another prominent U.S. due diligence firm, got raided by police and their local staff got detained. 
And CapVision is an industry leader here, boasting one of the biggest experts networks and really linking these experts in different fields with their mostly foreign clients. That's where the Chinese authorities say they crossed the line, dangling hefty payments in front of key players, not only within the Communist Party power structure, but at different state firms, encouraging these people to leak insider information, sensitive data, or even state secrets to uh, their foreign clients, according to the authorities, often with ties to foreign governments or even intelligence services. Now, we've spoken to a client of uh, CapVision, and he said those raids actually took place last year. So apparently, the authorities have been taking their time to build their case against CapVision, not only in terms of the investigation, but also in terms of uh, their propaganda, because the message is now very clear. They're further tightening the flow of information, further restricting access by foreign entities to uh, what they perceive uh, uh, to be sensitive information. And this, of course, comes on the heels of their newly revised counter-espionage laws uh, with the authorities uh, further broadening the concept of national security, banning uh, the sharing of any information, data, or materials uh, considered uh, to be uh, uh, having a bearing on national security and implications. So the line is not only very vague, but keeps shifting. And that, of course, is perhaps not surprising given the Chinese leader Xi Jinping's own remarks last October at a party congress saying how now security trumps everything in this country, including economic growth. But this, all of these latest developments do seem to be flying in the face of some of the more business-friendly messages from top officials in recent weeks and months, saying how China is now reopened for business and foreign investments. Stephen Zhang, CNN, Beijing. Coming up after the break, why meetings are out and AI is in a major survey into the world of work reveals we're inefficient and overloaded. So what can be done about it? Here's some time in your calendar for this one. That's next. Embracing artificial intelligence will remove the drudgery of work and unleash creativity. The crystal ball gazing comes from Microsoft, whose latest survey of work trends also reveals a generation of overworked employees struggling to innovate. According to Microsoft, inefficient meetings are the biggest barrier to productivity. The tech giant questioned 31,000 people in 31 countries and analyzed data from users of Microsoft 365. Jared. Spataro is Microsoft's Vice President of Modern Work and Business Applications. Jared joins us live now. So I want to talk about this idea of digital debt. It's I find very interesting, this idea that we are un- inundated with emails. I, I certainly am. Uh, data, meetings, it's so much more than we can process. And also it limits our creativity as well. Just walk us through how AI can tackle all of that. You bet. Let's take a big picture for just a moment. Uh, Of the people that we surveyed, 31,000 people, 64% of them told us that they just don't have the time and energy to get their work done. And then when we probed a little bit to ask them, well, what's going on? They told us um, that, that they were just struggling under this weight of work, this burden of work. So we looked into the telemetry. We found that they were spending, as we looked at what they were doing, about 60% of their time communicating. That's meetings, chats, emails, only about 40% of their time creating or being innovative. And that's that digital debt that we're talking about. So there's this sense 
that there is a, a kind of a heaviness associated with work. Some people tell us they feel like they even have two jobs. Now, the exciting thing is employees are, are more optimistic than they are fearful of AI. And we see AI as a way to lift some of that digital burden that they feel and get them out of the communication business and back into the innovation business. And that's what's exciting for us. See, it's interesting because when you think about, you know, just as you point out, how everyone is inundated with emails and that sort of thing and sort of taking some of that burden away will allow us to be creative. There are many people who think that um, improper use or overuse of AI will actually limit our creativity. How do you strike that balance? Well, we think that um, the way to think about this is that AI is essentially kind of an assistant. We call it a co-pilot at work. So you're still in charge. You still are the pilot. It's your job to get the work done. But AI can come in and help you with those tasks first that, that really are about communicating and finding the signal from the noise. I use it personally, for instance, to have more efficient meetings. I use it to not go to some meetings, which I love. I use it to never start with a, a blank slate as I start to do work in something like Microsoft Word. So when we, when we really look at how people are using AI today, we're finding that it allows them to cut through that digital debt. It allows them actually to then use the power of AI, these large language models, to be more creative. So obviously Microsoft has uh, a partnership with OpenAI. Obviously, given your role, you probably are aware of how to use AI thoughtfully, right? Um, how can you sort of pass that on to con other consumers of AI, especially um, in business, in the workplace, so that they also use AI uh, thoughtfully? Because obviously there are risks associated with it as well. Well, the interesting thing about AI is that it isn't always right, at least these large language models that have been in the news so much recently, and that is new. Most people are used to using a computer where they punch in, for instance, an equation, a math problem, they get an answer out that's always right every time. We like to teach people that these large language models, even when they're wrong, are usefully wrong. What we mean by that is they're helping you get closer to your goal, but that means you have a new set of skills to learn. You have to learn how to fact check. You have to learn how to make sure you understand the big picture enough to recognize when it might not quite be right. And so that new set of skills, that new what we would call AI aptitude is important for everyone. It's going to be an important set of skills that we're all going to have to learn. There's a lot of concern that, you know, AI is going to take away our jobs. Um, but as you point out, it's not necessarily about taking away jobs or taking away work. It's more about changing how we work and altering workload. Just expand, I know you touched on that earlier, but just expand on that a bit more. Boy, the data for me, Zane, really gave a very interesting picture here. I think in the headlines today, we're reading all about people being fearful of AI. And in particular, our data found that 49% of people were worried about AI taking their jobs. But a whopping 70% of the same respondents told us that they would offload as much work as possible to AI in the workplace just to reduce that digital debt that we were speaking of. So that goes back to this idea that employees' optimism about AI really outweighs their fears. I think that's a nuance on many of the headlines we're seeing. For us, it's ever-changing, but it's a snapshot of how people are starting to understand how valuable AI can be. So what's the best way to scale just to ensure that the benefits of AI as you have laid out are widely or evenly rather distributed, that it's not just certain companies, certain industries, certain sectors that, reach the, that reap the benefits, but really that the benefits are broadly uh, distributed across society? Well, our big announcement in March was a new product that we call the Microsoft 365 Copilot, and we think of it as the way to scale. What we've essentially done is we've taken these large language models We've combined it with the power of the 
Microsoft apps, that's Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Teams, Outlook, the, the things that literally billions of people use every day to, to get their work done. And we put it at the point of work. So no longer do you have to go to some other place to get AI to help, but right within your inbox. It's summarizing emails, it's helping you to draft replies right within your meetings. You can ask it, hey, you know, summarize the decisions we've made and what's still outstanding. That kind of like at the point of work insertion of AI, we think that's the best way to scale. We just make sure it's available for people. And we're really excited about that. All right, uh, Jaris Vitaro, live for us there. Thank you so much, we appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome back. Fox Corp, the parent company of Fox News and Fox Business, posting a net loss of $50 million for the latest quarter. Uh, the main reason it sank into the red, the $780 million it agreed to pay to Dominion Voting Systems to head off a trial over alleged defamation. Oliver Darcy joins us uh, live now. So, Oliver, just walk us through what Lachlan Murdoch said on this particular call. He touched on this idea that Fox News isn't going to be changing its programming strategy. But did he say anything specifically about Fox's strategy and the thought process behind the firing of Tucker Carlson? That's right. He did indicate that after this massive Dominion lawsuit and after the firing of Tucker Carlson, that the network is going to stick with its right wing talk strategy over on Fox News. Um, he made a number of comments about the Dominion settlement. He actually didn't apologize or, or admit any fault in the way the network covered the 2020 election during this call with investors. He said he was proud of Fox News proud of the team and confident in the Fox News brand. Um, he said they only settled because the Delaware judge had removed some of their uh, ability to defend themselves through pretrial hearings, and they, they, ju they just didn't want a prolonged legal process to play out. Uh, but when he was asked about the firing of Tucker Carlson, which obviously came days after the settlement was announced with Dominion, uh, he said that they're not changing their strategy. This is not something that would indicate that they're shifting to be more moderate or anything like that. He said that their strategy is obviously successful, that was the word he used, and that they're going to be sticking with it uh, in the long term. He also touched on, I think he also touched on uh, the other lawsuit by Smartmatic, which is going to go to trial in 2025. They're seeking $2.7 billion in damages. They're, they're another voting technology firm. Just walk us through what he said about that. That's exactly right. Smartmatic is suing Fox News. This is making its way through the legal system right now. It's in the New York courts, so it's going a lot slower than the Dominion lawsuit, which was uh, in Delaware. And Lachlan Murdoch, he says that this is a fundamentally different case than the Dominion, uh, the, the Dominion case because of uh, the ability to defend themselves based on other First Amendment grounds. And he said he's confident in it and will, um, they will defend themselves moving forward in, the, in this case. Right. Oliver Darcy, live for us there. Thank you so much. That's it for the show. I'm Zane Asher. I'll be back in a couple of hours with On The World. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.